It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Has America gone completely off the rails? Is the country on the precipice of a total collapse? Not quite yet, at least not from a psychological perspective, says today's special guest, Michael Adams, PhD, in his new book, Make America Sane Again, a mental health expert weighs in. To quote Dr. Adams, I think we should be aware and concerned about America's mental health, but not panicked, which is really good news. Um, Dr. Adams specializes in relationship issues and has practiced for over 40, 40 years. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Miami after completing a pre-doctoral fellowship at Yale University. He is also the author of Affairs of the Net, Anniversary, and God's Shrink, for which he also co-authored the screenplay Now in Development. I'd love to, love to know more about that. Um, good morning, Michael, and welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for having me. Um, you're, you're so welcome. Do you prefer that I call you Dr. Adams or Michael? Oh, I like to go with Michael. I like to keep it conversational, simple, and uh, user-friendly, as we say. Good. I just wanted to be respectful. Okay. Of course. Thank you. So you say in your book, and I think we all kind of are aware of the fact that pessimism has taken a deep hold on America, and that fear and distrust are running rampant in the individual and collective psyches. And I think we're all running around figure, trying to figure out what is going on. So what is your perspective on this? Well, you know, Randy, in the very first chapter of the book, I talk about not feeding the elephant. So what do I mean by that? The elephant in the room is negative media. And we're surrounded by negativity and media and pessimism, right? And we're involved right now with a huge political divide. People are very polarized, black and white, you know, views of things, very little gray. And you know, from working in psychology, a lot of things in life are gray. Not everything, but a lot of things are. So I start with stop being the elephant. So I tell people, listen, you know, news back in the day was informational and factual, but over time it's evolved into a 24-hour news cycle across all mediums. And much of the content of that is now opinion as opposed to fact. So we have to be very, very careful as consumers because the news is a business. So we have to be really careful about what we're consuming because it starts to affect our worldview. And if we're listening to a lot of negativity, it's going to subtly and not so subtly influence the way we look at things. We can become pessimistic and negative and say, this is wrong, that is wrong. So being the optimist I am, I would say, be very careful about what you digest. Stop feeding the elephant. Watch some news, of course, you know, be informed, but be careful what you consume because, again, your unconscious mind records everything. And if you're 
exposed to so much negativity, you can view other people, the world, and events in a very, very negative way. So just be careful about what you're consuming. That's my, that's my opening statement about that. Okay. All right. Uh, so is, has there always been things to fear in, in the same um, intensity? As it is now, or well, is or, or is it really harder now for us? No, I, I, that's a great question, and, and I'm going to answer you by saying this. Anybody who's a, at least even a, a, a brief student of history will understand that we've always been through massive crises, right, around the world, certainly, and certainly in this country. Okay, so let's take it back to December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, and I promise you that it was a panic across this nation, across the world. You know, because the Germans already had invaded Western Europe. And I can tell you right now, any student in the history will tell you that the world was highly panicked during that time, right? And so we're always, that's just one example from history, but we're always challenged by things. I think where we're scaled now is the anxiety is higher because the flow of information is much faster. So we're getting inundated from all kinds of mediums, and that's in real time oftentimes. So we don't have time to digest like we used to digest and say, wow, I wonder what about this news item. I wonder about that news item. So things are scaled in such a fashion that the news is moving very, very fast across all mediums 24 hours a day. So I think that has a lot to do with, with heightening people's level of panic, anxiety. But the short answer is this is not the first time America has been challenged. It's not going to be the last time America is challenged, right? But it has everything to do with how do we respond as opposed to react. And as any, anybody who studies psychology knows, you're much better off responding to events as opposed to reacting. And fear will make you react. It won't make you respond. So you've got to bring the fear down and intellectually process things and make sure you have a thorough understanding and respond to events in the world with a thoughtful eye as opposed to a frightened eye. It makes all the difference mm. in the world. Okay, and that 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 really makes sense. Thank you for you know for acknowledging that because um, you're right. You know, we're living in this time, but it, it's been chaotic many, many other times. I mean, there was a pandemic in, um, what was it, the 30s or 40s um, or the 20s, yeah. something like that. And I mean, we've been through... The Spanish flu, yeah. Yes, the Spanish flu, exactly. Um, and, you know, back, I think you and I are probably around the same age. Um, but I think back then when, when news broke... Like you said, it wasn't 24 hours a day. And then you would go to your newspaper and you would read articles. You would pick up a copy of Time or Life and you would get yes. a journalistic point of view. But it was not a, you know, a slanted point of view. It just was uh, what was happening or a journalistic kind of um, expose on what was going on. And so we had different ways to, to look at this. And it just was not uh, so in our face. That's so true. And the other thing is, you know, we have to remember something that, you know, uh, conflict creates drama, drama creates interest. It's a tried and true formula in the media, in entertainment, right? But when you put it in the news medium, right, which is conflict creates drama, drama creates interest. Great in movies and TV shows. But when you put it into the news and you realize, you know, there's an invested, there's a vested interest in creating conflict. Because again, when you're frightened and you see conflict, what are you going to do? We're pre-programmed to tune in, not tune out, especially if it's fearful. So the thing is, we have to bear that in mind that to keep viewers involved, engaged, 
right? There's an incentive throughout the media to say, okay, how do we keep people engaged? Well, we've got to hype up the conflict. And the problem with that is that it really circles back to something that is really unfortunate, which is America was founded on a country where people came to believe and think however they wanted. It was seen as a refuge throughout the world where you can just be who you want to be. And I think that there's a huge intolerance out there right now. So when we talk about making America sane, one thing we do is try to be a little more tolerant of other points of view. You don't have to agree with everything, but you also don't have to be rageful because somebody doesn't agree with you. That's not American. What's American is to say, look, that's your belief. This is my belief. Can we discuss it? Let's talk about it. Because there's always two sides, if not three sides, to a story, Randy. So if we can just pay attention to the other person, what they're trying to tell us, you start to discover something. It's like when I do marital therapy. Ultimately, there may be conflict, but I, I tell people, look, ultimately, you want the same thing. You want harmony. So the methodology of getting there may be different, but you want the same things. You want to have a better life for yourself, your children, your country, your friends. And the only way to achieve that is to have an open mind and allow people to believe what they believe without getting so worked up and angry with them. That's a big problem. I mean, that's what our constitutional constitution tells us we have the right to, but somehow um, that's gotten, I don't know, <laughs> things have changed. Compromised. It's, it's, compromised. Great word. Thank you. It's, got, it's become compromised, and we don't seem to have that right anymore. Um, there's so many, out, so many media outlets that are trying to silence us, shut us down. Uh, yes. So it's it's getting a little. That's what's the scariest thing I think is that we're not hearing everything that we should be hearing. We're not getting all that information. No, we're not. Uh, and you know, it, it's kind of become a cliche when people say do your homework. But there's value in doing your homework. In other words, if there's something that you need to learn more about it, do some of the heavy lifting. Go ahead and investigate. Go into back channels. Go and search out. You know objective opinions if you can search for facts it takes some work but we're in a very mm -hmm. high-paced world right so we deal with sound bites and unfortunately randy you know this unfortunately many people have the attention span of a gnat you know because <laughs> they're so busy they're so busy they're doing this event and they're inundated inundated with messages all day and night long right so to right. really take a time and reflect on something deeply maybe do your homework on it learn about it in depth that's almost a luxury for a lot of people. So what do people gravitate towards? The easier, the easier route. The easier route oftentimes is, well, okay, well, you know, this person believes this. They just said that in a soundbite, and I guess I think like that. You know, in my practice, I will tell you that I learned throughout the pandemic and the political divide, many, many people would speak in soundbites. I'd listen to them carefully and be like, this just sounds like something they heard on the news. And it doesn't have much depth to it. So we have to be, once again, we have to be very, very careful about being consumers because that's, that, therein lies the problem. We have to take the time and energy and thoughtfulness to think things through and be tolerant. Yes, we do. Um, you know, going back to the elephant in the room, the media, um, you mentioned enhanced reality. So is that really what we're talking about? Enhanced reality is where it is slanted a particular way? 
Yeah, it's yes, it is. It's it's slanted a particular way. So something something may be factual, right? Report is factual, but when now it ends up enhanced reality becomes propaganda. In other words, let me take this news item, but let me spin it in this direction. Let me just let me take part of a larger you know a, a larger soundbite, if you will, narrow it down to just a few words that makes somebody look or something look really bad. That's easy to do. It's very easy to do. All you have to do is just segment out what you want to people to pay attention to, right? So the enhanced reality becomes the part where we segue over to propaganda as opposed to news. So what's news? Uh-huh. News is objective information, maybe opinion. Propaganda is trying to intentionally get you to think one way or the other. That's what propaganda is. It's like we're going to lay this on you really thick in this direction over and over and over again. And if we repeat it loudly enough and often enough, you'll start to believe what we're telling you. So we have to be real careful because there's a lot of that going on. There is a lot of that going on. Uh, You say the mind and the human body are um, intricately connected. How you think has a significant impact on how you feel and how you feel physically affects your mood and thought processing. Um, I think we're all pretty much aware of that. However, I don't know if people really, really know to the degree that our thoughts can affect our bodies. So can you um, elaborate a little more on that? Yes, thank you for that question. I I love answering this question. Okay, so let's look at a a real-life event that has affected virtually everybody, right? And that's the pandemic. So we have this virus that spreads throughout the world and spreads a lot of panic throughout the world. And yes, of course, there are a lot of physical problems, a lot of deaths related to that, right? Right. What happened to him? Okay. Just keep listening, keep listening, keep listening. The call dropped. We need him to get back on. So we're talking um, to Michael Adams, PhD, about his book, Make America Sane Again. And let me... um, See if I can text him and let him know that his call dropped. <laughs> oh my gosh, always something. Okay. I'm just letting him know that his call dropped and asking him if he can call back in. We've been planning this interview. Um, probably since August, and um, we've had to reschedule it a couple times because he travels and has had issues with planes and things being late, so he hasn't been able to get to places on time. Uh, So if for some reason we cannot reconnect, we will have this conversation again. I don't know what happened. I'm just going to wait a minute. If you've been listening to my shows over the years, you'll know that many, this has happened several times over the years. And um, sometimes the guest gets back in, sometimes they don't, sometimes we have to reschedule, sometimes we can continue. I don't know what is happening here. Um, Sometimes it's blog talk radio's fault, sometimes it's, the guest fault sometimes it's fine. There he is. Okay, I'm you're here. back. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm back. Sorry about that. Was I saying something really smart? Probably, but your call dropped, so okay. You probably were. Okay, so I had asked you <clears throat> I had asked you about how explain how the mind physically mind affects the physical body and you were talking about something profound. So let's start that again. Sure. So what I was basically saying is we all have a very robust example that we've all lived through and are living through, right? And that's the pandemic. And while the virus itself, of course, was dangerous, caused a lot of turmoil, caused death and illness, there's no question about that. The fear associated with that suppressed everybody's immune system. And fear suppresses the immune system. And what happens after that is you're more susceptible to illness. So my argument would be this. What piggybacked on the virus is fear. And what fear did is suppress the immune system. And what that did is leave people more susceptible to illness. So it's a great example of, of body-mind connection. And there's multiple, there's multiple, multiple, you know, examples of that connection through all domains in, in medicine and psychology. The body affects the mind, right? And the mind affects the body. It's a two-way street. So our body manifests, you know, what's going on in our mind. And this is, of course, true with, with great problems that we have in this country with obesity, addictions, and that kind of thing, right? Our response to stress is, is not, oftentimes for many people, is not healthy, right? Overeating, overdrinking, using drugs. That's obviously a maladaptive way to deal with stress, but that's our bodies really being affected by what has gone on in our minds. I am so glad that you brought up that point about fear causing weak immune systems because I was saying that from the beginning and I kept listening, trying to find somebody, some doctor, somebody who would pipe up and say, you know, we need to calm the fear down because we're all getting sick because of our immune systems. And I know this because <clears throat> working with people who have had narcissistic abuse, sometimes they'll say to me, well, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. But what I've noticed is that autoimmune disorders are the first thing that happens when you are exposed to stress constantly. And often when we are, we don't even realize it because it be we become so used to it that we don't realize it until we're out of it. But, um, but I see autoimmune all the time, autoimmune disorders all the time in my work. And I see um, people having lost um, parents to parents who were in marriages that were um, very toxic, who have died young and so much of this. So I'm right, right there with you. Yes, there's no question about that. No question about that. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, if people had that understanding, the profound effect, you know, fear and stress have on their bodies, if they really could wrap their head around that, then they'd see, look, you know, what's going on in my body right now has everything to do with my perception of what's going on in my psychological world. And that awareness itself can, can help to mitigate some destructive behaviors. You know, I always tell people, Randy, in my practice, you know, you want to make a change? Well, first of all, you have to be aware of the change you need to make, right? Because many things in life are habitual. And you want to be aware of what you're doing, and then hopefully you've got the incentive to take better care of yourself and others, and you start making those changes. You need a roadmap, of course. You need to know mm -hmm. what you need to do. Right. But once, once you've got that roadmap, and this, this wraps right back into one of the major theses of my books, it becomes personal responsibility. 
So I'm going to wrap around that for a moment. There's a chapter okay, called good. The Blame Game. What's, mm-hmm. what's the blame game? The blame game is all about blaming other people or events or institutions or political parties or this or that or the other for my plight in life. Well, you know what? That may be true. may be true to a large extent, small extent, but I always tell people, now what? Now what? You need to take personal responsibility within your ability to do so and, and just you know step up to the plate, if you will, in your own life. Take charge of your own life and stop blaming everybody and everything and just take charge and do something positive to move forward. Don't be a pessimistic downer. Try to be an optimistic, positive person because just as fear and pessimism spread, so does optimism. If you're a positive person taking better care of yourself, people will gravitate towards positive energy. They, they, won't, they won't shy away from it. And I think that's important for people to remember. So in the theme of Make America Sane Again, I'm going, to, I'm going to jump to a conclusion, Randy. I tell people, you're, you can't make America sane again. You can make yourself saner. And if you do that and you spread that kind of positive energy to other people, you'll have done your part. So it's an abstraction, right? Make America sane again. But making yourself saner again is not an abstraction. And once you do that and once you spread that positive energy with your attitude change, You'll be good for yourself and good for other people. And it's doable. It's, it's all attitude. It really is. I 100% agree with you. Uh, you know, during some of these crazy times when there were activists that were doing protests and just saying nasty, nasty things and fighting, fighting, fighting the system and, you know, taking sides and everything like that. And people are like, how do we, you know, how do we stop all this animosity? Um, and you're right. It begins with each of us. It really does. And I would say, you know, we don't need to, to be this way. All we need to do is change our way of thinking, the way, you know, we represent ourselves in the world. And then it begins well, to ripple out. Well, you see, and your listeners might be saying, well, that sounds great. How do I do that? So I'm going to mm-hmm. answer that question already. Good. And here it is. Okay, good. All right. Frustration leads to aggression. So whether you're verbally aggressive, physically aggressive, what have you, it's a tried and true psychological axiom that you have to be frustrated first. So for people to lash out, there's some frustration. You have to identify that frustration. What are you frustrated about? Are you frustrated about the economy, your political party, your spouse, your kids, your boss? Whatever you're frustrated about, you need to identify that and learn how to mitigate that because if you don't, you're going to become more aggressive with other people, either passive aggressive, and you're very familiar with that concept, or you're going to become overtly aggressive. So figure out what's frustrating you and start to work on that, okay? And get away from that blame game because the more you accept responsibility, the more you're going to be able to action what you need to do and mitigate that frustration. You know, there's an an old uh, joke. Okay, here's the joke, Randy. The boss yells at the employee. The employee goes home, yells at the spouse. The spouse yells at the kid. The kid chases the dog. The dog chases the cat, and the cat eats the mouse. (laughs) And what is that an example of? It's displacement of aggression. So if you're angry about something, mad about something, frustrated about something, be very, very careful about who you unload with because maybe they're an innocent party. Maybe they don't deserve that kind of anger or frustration. Maybe you're just displacing it, which is something a lot of people do, even unconsciously. They take their anger out on somebody. And, you know, it doesn't really have to do with that person. It has to do with your own frustration inside yourself. So 
get to know yourself better and find out and identify what that frustration or a set of frustrations are and then work your best to mitigate it. Now, thank you for clarity on that um, because you're right. Um, just the, the statement of we shouldn't do it um, doesn't help. We need a way to do it. I have a family member who I've had to distance myself, extremely distance myself from because right. this person wanted to provoke me over politics every time I picked up the phone. And when I would say, let's not go there, you know, let's just have a friendly conversation, yes. this person would yes. not have a friendly conversation. And then it began to be an attack. And then I would ha- I'd have to hang up on this person and then I'd get blamed because how could you hang up on me? <laughs> and it just got crazy. So I just had to like really sever that relationship. Yes. Yes. You know, it's the thing is, right? Again, look, you can have an opposing view with another person, right? What's the matter with that? You can have strong views. What's the matter with that? But if you're invested in just the conflict and arguing and getting mad at somebody else, that, that doesn't move the ball down the field. You have to be a good listener as well as a good expresser. So a good listener listens to another side, right? And says, and this is fascinating to me, right? You see these debates all the time, right? Why can't one of these people just say, hey, you know what? I think that's actually a good idea. And if I become this or that, I'm going to incorporate that. See, to me, that would give major credibility to anybody, but they're always polarized, right? And nobody wants to see somebody else's position and therein lies the problem. And no, Randy, the other thing is it's psychology 101. If somebody's attacking you, that relative or that person on the phone with you just wants to jump into political stuff, right? What's their agenda? What are they going to accomplish? What are they going to get you to say on the phone? Oh, wow, I just changed my point of view. That's amazing. Thank you for enlightening me. When somebody comes across aggressively with you, what are you going to do? You're going to get defensive or you're going to withdraw yourself from the field, the playing field, which is what you did. It's like you didn't want to hang up, but it's enough already, right? Right. I mean, it's bullying. That's really what it is. It's bullying. It is. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And plenty of adults are bullies. Uh, you talk about, you know, you, you were just talking about the blame game and, um, and you say how it deals with projection. And this is something um, – the mental process by which we attribute to others what is actually in our own minds. Um, yes. This happens all the time with people with narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, they, you bet. You bet. They, yep, they project everything onto their targets, and their targets believe, after a while, that they are the things that are being, they're being accused of. Yes, there's no, there's no question about that. And you know from your work with narcissists, too, you know, if you – if they perceive something, you know, like a rejection of them in some ways, it's a narcissistic injury and they can't take that, right? So they right. can't look inside themselves. The narcissist can't look inside themselves and say, you know what? Holy cow, um, I'm experiencing this because I kind of engineered that. I created that for myself. No, it's a narcissistic injury. So they project on the other person. They belittle the other person. They make the other person feel less than. And that's one of the strategies because they can't, they can't see enough. And the interesting thing, you know, working with narcissists, their egos are like so inflated, it's beyond, right? So they can't even conceptualize the idea that, hey, guess what? You're, you're full of yourself and you're narcissistic and you don't really see people in the proper light. They don't have the, either the ability or the willingness to look inside themselves and accept what I talked about before, personal responsibility. It's, 
it's, and you know this from your work, it's a very, very challenging, you know, personality to deal with. And, and the victims are the ones on the other ends who get abused right. or like you said, they start to believe the propaganda that, that they're sent their way. They feel mm-hmm. less than, and that's the tragedy too. Mm-hmm. And what you said, therein lies the difference between someone who is narcissistic and someone who has the personality disorder. I think this is um, greatly misunderstood. Um, you know, yes. the personality disorder is the thing that makes the person unable to um, to go within, to analyze themselves, to take a look at what they're saying, even have, even care. So that's um, that's the difference. Okay, so let's yes. put, did you have something to say? No, just briefly, I was going to say, you know, it requires, you know, the observing ego, the observing ego, the, the ability for a person to take a couple of steps back and say, how am I in the world? How am I as a human being in the world? How am I responding to other people? How am I responding to my own actions, right? The observing ego is the ability to take a step back and see yourself, kind of like the director who's in the first row and watching a play. How am I walking through this life? And reflecting on themselves. So observing egos is critical to self-growth. That's all I want to say about and, that one. Yeah, and, and observing, observing ego is something that uh, victims of narcissistic abuse have. And so what they do is they try to see what their part is in what they're experiencing. Yes. And that gets, yes. that is like, it takes them down a rabbit hole because they don't have a part in it. And but the, someone who thinks normally, who processes thoughts in a fairly normal fashion, is going to say, well, what, what did I do? And that also creates a problem when they try to share their situation with others, because others will say to them, well, what did you do? Right. <laughs> so, so they have right. an excessive observing ego, and it doesn't help them. <laughs> no, it doesn't, right? No. Okay. So um, switching it up a little bit, why sure. you talk you talk about um, enthusiastic fan of online education, and I know I've read in your book um, why you say that, but maybe you could elaborate on that. Well, look, the thing is with online education is it's it's problematic because a lot of what takes place in the classroom, learning that takes place in an actual classroom, no matter what age group you're in, all the way from kindergarten through graduate school or whatever, when you're interacting in the classroom with a professor or teacher in class, right, you have that visceral experience of being with other students, the spontaneity, the social interaction, the intellectual dialogue that goes back and forth, okay? That's an important part of learning, especially for children. Being in the classroom is essential because that's where they pick up their social skills and pick up empathy and and pick up those kinds of things that are important to human development, right? So the thing is with online education is that when you exclusively or or predominantly take your classes online, you're missing that in-classroom experience. And to say that's equivocal to being in the classroom is, is ridiculous. And I'm going to say that word ridiculous. It's not equivocal. Can you get value out of it? Of course. Is it convenient? Of course. If you're a responsible student, can you get a lot out of it? Of course. But to say it's the exact same equivalent is silly because it just isn't. So why do I say that? It's because not only are you missing the in-classroom experience, right? But, Randy, the reality, here's the reality. The watered-down process of education is that a lot of students cheat, 
They cheat online. And the thing is, cheating has always been around. That's nothing new, but it's easier than ever. If I told you, I was a professor, if I told you that students can go online, they can download any paper you, they want, all they have to do is change up a couple of words and make it sound like they're them. And that's not rare. It's pretty common. And, you know, these testing centers, they're not foolproof either, you know, and the cameras at home aren't foolproof either. There's always a way to get around it. Okay, let me give you a quick, quick example. I had a, a, a colleague of mine tell me that he had a patient who had a pretty significant car accident here in Florida, and he was required to take a class, right, for safety education for driving. Well, he very proudly announced that, you know, I passed 100%, but of course I didn't take it. My wife did. So, so now you'd say to yourself, well, you know, okay, big deal. No, it's actually a big deal because now let's segue to something else. Let's say you're a nursing student, you're taking organic chemistry online, right? But you, you're bad at it. You're not good at it. But guess what? Your friend's good at it. So he or she takes it for you and actually gets a great grade because it's possible to do that. Not in all situations, depending on security. But a lot of situations. Now, does that matter? Yeah, now it's starting to matter because somebody is maybe, maybe getting an A for a course that they really would have gotten a C or D, wouldn't have to repeat or study harder. So does this happen? Yes. Does it happen at high rates? I'm convinced it does. So we have to be super careful about the role that online education plays. I understand it's convenient. I understand you don't have to get in the car and go to class. But a lot is lost in that process. So that's my little so speech on that one. Well, that's a good one. Uh, so how does that relate? <laughs> hey, I'm batting a thousand. I'm batting a thousand with you, Randy. You're, you're doing great. You are. You're doing great. Um, so how does that relate to making America sane again? Um, I, th- I think we have to get. I think we have to get people off the computer, and that's really putting the genie back in the in the bottle. I think we have to get people spending less time on the computer, and. That's particularly important for children, adolescents, and young adults because in my practice, it's not unusual, it's my practice for some high school kid to be, especially boys, they'll be on video games 20, 30, 40 hours a week during the school year, right? So they get totally addicted to these games, and that interferes with their education. They'd rather play a video game than do their homework, and that's – Young ladies, what they do, they don't play video games as much, but they're definitely on social media more. So that's the bifurcation of that phenomenon. Mostly boys on video games. Young women, ladies are online with much more social media types of things, okay? Fashion, looks, gossip, whatever we want to call it. So what do we do about that? You know, and this is the tough part. This is the heavy lifting. You know, it starts at home starts at home. So the parents somehow have to put limits on computer exposure, game exposure, social media exposure, because again, not to belabor the point, but a lot of your listeners with children or grandchildren, they know what I'm talking about. They know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a struggle and it's a fight, but norms get established early. And if we have a norm in this house where guess what? Yes, you can spend an hour or two hours a night on the computer, whether it's video games. I know you have to do homework. Got that. But the rest of the time, you're not going to be on the computer. That's how it starts. And, you know, it's, it's again, I, I'm not naive about this, Randy. I think it's very hard to do. But I think that's where it starts. We have to get away from computers because over time, you'll see that what generations happen over time, what's going to happen is we're going to get more and more and more connected to technology and less and less connected to people. 
And I'm not a pessimist, but you're going to see our social interactions are going to be even further, further computer-based, and that will degrade the quality of life. And I'm not a purveyor of doom, but this is, this is the future. And you've got generations now that, right, iPhone generation. I've got patients whose four-year-old has an, who has an iPhone. Really? At the age of four? They're not even in <laughs> kindergarten yet. They can barely talk. <laughs> and let's face it. Let's face it. Look, you know, we're all guilty of this. You know, the iPhones, the smartphones, the computers, they're convenient as anything. You can look anything up. You can send a text around the world in two seconds, right? It's, it's very, very seductive because it's entertaining, it's informative. It's convenient, has all those markers, but the more we're embedded in that, the less we're embedded in real life. That's so true. You know, I just um, published an article on my website about empathy, um, talking about how it is, you know, um, studies have shown that this generation has less empathy than generations before. And I, you know, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because in my neighborhood I have, I guess I've counted like 50 kids, middle schoolers who, uh, between two bus stops, you know, and um, I used to walk the neighborhood in the morning and I'd walk past them and I couldn't believe what I saw. Everyone was looking down at a phone. So you have 25 kids at each bus stop and maybe two or three are talking. It's, um, it's a way to escape from being social and I think it can cause social anxiety. It can cause social anxiety, but I'll tell you what else it can cause, a deficit in social skills. Right. So conversational skills like you and I are having right now on the phone, right? That, that is something that is you learn over time. Right? You learn to talk to people, converse with people, listen to people, express your thoughts and feelings. The more time you spend on these devices, these kids especially, right, the more they do that, the more they end up with, and I coined this word, you heard it here, social anorexia. Mm. So what social anorexia is the degradation of social skills to the point where you so thinned out on them that you don't have a full, complete, robust social life anymore because your life is so much time spent online. So social anorexia will be the inability to interact with people on a normal basis for extended periods of time. And again, I'm not a purveyor of doom, but you can see what's going on. We're more hooked up than ever, and that's not going away. I have so many clients who are battling with their sons, mainly, over video games. Um, And it's a hard-won battle. It really is because these kids, they are addicted, and they will get nasty and sometimes violent if you try to take take their time away from these video games. Um, Yeah. So that that loops back into what I said. But, you yeah, know, Randy, that loops back into what I said before about frustration leading to aggression. I was talking about that earlier. And the thing is, think mm-hmm. about it. You take that kid off his computer game, right? And what ends up happening is that kid, boy, let's say as an example, uh, that boy is going to be frustrated because you're taking him away from something that's highly reinforcing, that's shooting off dopamine in his brain all the time. The rewards in his brain are going all the time. So he also has a chemical reaction. So when you say, guess what? Do your homework. Turn that off. It's like you just frustrated that kid, and that kid's going to get aggressive. So what you just said, yes, verbally, possibly physically. And, again, these are, you know, these are like scaled issues that are, that are really of concern, you know. And 
Is there an easy fix to this? Of course not, but I, I think it starts at the earliest ages, whatever norm you establish in your home. You know, I'll tell you real quickly, my daughter is very strict about this. She allows her daughters, who are my granddaughters, they're like, you know, seven and nine, right? She allows them one hour a day on the computer. That's it. That's it. And that was, that was early on, and that's their norm. And now they understand it. Hey, I've got one hour today between seven and eight. I get the computer. And they're all excited, but guess what? At eight o'clock? done and there isn't a fight because that's always the way it's been i love that yeah you do you do do, and you have to start it from the beginning um a lot of people use it as a baby as a babysitter and it starts when the kids are very young and they're in the way and here play this game or her here's my phone play some games on it and you really do start them early i had a client i was once on with on zoom with and his son was home sick from school. And while I was working with my client, the son was texting him from upstairs. And my client said to him, I told you you have 15 minutes on your video game and that's enough. And then you're turning it off. And then of course the, the son by text was lying to him, was, um, you know, trying to convince him. Well, my friend just got on and can I have a little more time? And right. my, client, my client said, what do I say? I said, well, tell him that that's what you said. Uh, and that was the agreement you made. And, um, you know, and that's it. So he said that. And the kid responded, why do you lie? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, he, my like, goodness. went after him. He went after him, you know. Um, wow. So <laughs> crazy, right? Uh, yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy. So, all right, let's move, let's talk about, you know, because um, this is an addiction and it is permeating the society, but it's not the only addiction. So you say that addictions of all kinds are epidemic and completely out of control. Yes. Um, and so why are they an insidious force that is ultimately weakening America? Well, because if you look at it, you know, America is a wonderful country in many ways, but here, here's the, here's the uh, sad underbelly to America. We're free to do pretty much whatever we want, including abuse ourselves. Okay. So we can abuse ourselves to any degree and pretty much get away with it. And that's a bad thing because let's start with obesity. That's an addiction. So obesity is out of control in America and you know, adult obesity and childhood obesity at all times highs, right? Those are addictions, right? Uh, we right. have a huge, huge drug problem in America, which is getting worse. It's not getting better. We certainly have had addictions to cigarettes and alcohol around for a long time, right? That kind of a thing. So why is that? Okay, because first of all, there's the proliferation and the availability of all these drugs, okay? They're everywhere. You can get them. It's not hard in any part of America, so they're available. And people want to escape. You know, people want to escape their situation. They want to change their consciousness, you know, whether they're anxious, depressed, or what have you. Uh, I do want to circle to something that I have is one of my champion causes, and that's addressing fentanyl abuse and addiction. And fentanyl is just one drug, just one drug, but it will take over 100,000 American lives this year, okay? And that's increasing. So in, in the span of about 10 years, we can expect over a million of our fellow Americans are going to pass away. That's, that's unacceptable. It's dramatic and it's tragic for, for, especially for the families. And I will tell you what we need in this country is we need an aggressive approach to, and let's just, let's just use 
fentanyl addiction for a moment, okay? There's other addictions. But now fentanyl is, is a deadly drug. And the thing is, every state in the United States, Randy, has a mechanism that if a person's a danger to themselves or danger to others, they can be involuntarily committed to a hospital, all right, for treatment, danger to yourself or danger to others. Well, I would argue that a person's fentanyl addicted is definitely a danger to themselves. And I would say that those people need to be involuntarily committed to a six-month program outside of a major city out in the country where they're expected to work and participate in the support of that place where they can build up their self-esteem, get away from the, these addictive drugs, and, and revitalize their lives and come back into society. Why do I pick six months? Because, you know, we trained up at Yale and they taught us this, that it takes a full six months of complete absence for a brain to really, truly reset themselves. That's why 30-day programs don't really work very well for most people. That's why recidivism is high. So I don't know one single family member who's lost a fentanyl abuser to death, and I know a few in my practice, right? Not one who would disagree with a radical approach like that. But it takes leadership. It takes somebody with the, the ability to say, yes, here's the problem. We're going to deal with this very aggressively. And I could go on and on about these topics. I know we don't have a lot of time, but the thing is we can scale these solutions. We can get people to hopefully have hope to get their lives back together again. But again, you know, the pleasure centers of our brain are reinforced by dopamine, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's food or whether it's a video game, but dopamine doesn't care where it came from. See, that's the thing. It doesn't care about the source. It just likes the feeling. So, it will crave more from whatever source. And once we have a pattern going, right, it's very, very difficult to change that pattern unless we put ourselves in the position where we really um, are going to truncate that desire if we're a drug addict, right, or have a nationally scaled program that tries to address these addictions and in not a punishing way, but a treatment way. And I think that's way overdue. I agree with you. You are so right. You know, um, I didn't even realize that getting addicted to it was, I, I mean, I know it's addictive, but I thought that it really pretty much kills you before you even get to that point because there's so many kids that just take it one time and then they die. So, well, I, um, I think that's a great point. That's a great point, but that, that's a subset. So, yes, there's people who try it once and it can kill them, right? Uh, especially with heroin as well. You can overdose in your first time or your 60th time. So um, there's, there's a, a subgroup of people, yes, who can overdose right away and it takes their lives. But there's also people, you know, there's certain cities in America, for example, San Francisco has got a horrible fentanyl problem with people in the streets who've been addicted for weeks and months and even years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just that one dose that goes too far. It just takes one, right? And That's that right. takes their life. That's absolutely right. Whew. It is a big problem. And and then we get into, you know, the border and all that stuff coming over here. So, yeah, this is a problem. This is a major problem that's killing America. Um, okay. So uh, let's talk about, <laughs> I like this chapter, accepting personal responsibility. <laughs> I really like this because I don't know. We don't see this a lot. We don't see people, many people taking personal responsibility, accepting personal responsibility is always the blame game. It's always, you know, well, I wouldn't have done this if this didn't happen or, well, you did it worse or um, what is this about? It's, it's about 
saying, look, what, what can I do within my span of control for myself and those, that, those lives that I touch, right? Instead of getting completely lost in that blame game where blame this, blame that, blame an organization, blame a person, blame a race, blame a party, whatever, you fill in the blank, right? You can spend a lot of time in that, and you can spend all your time in that, and it gets you absolutely nowhere. So I would say, what part are, are you playing in this? So I do a little exercise with people in the book. I said, listen, just bear with me for a second. We have 330 million people in the United States right now, okay? So imagine you're one cell in the body of that. You're one cell out of 330 million, right? Now, you could be part of the immune system, or you could be part of the inflammatory system. So what's the difference? The inflammatory cell just makes it tougher on the body to survive properly. What it does is it makes matters worse. What the T cell does, right, the killer cell does, is it makes matters better. What are you going to be? You're going to be a T cell or an inflammatory cell? You're going to be negative? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to try to bring some positive energy? That's your choice. So was your bitch in a moment through life? And some people, by the way, listen, I'm not, I'm not minimizing people's difficulties. Of course, people have a lot of difficulties, but... Instead of bitching and moaning through life, what are you going to do with what you can do? Are you going to be that T-cell who tries to bring positive energy? So are you going to be that like inflammatory cell with negativity? Just take personal responsibility because at least know who you are. If you're going to be a negative person, accept responsibility. I am a negative person. I'm a pessimistic human being, and I spread negative energy. That is who I am. Is that desirable? I would hope not. <laughs> but I think the person who says, look, I – I have a choice here. I can try to be positive. I can try to be polite. I can try to be nice and have manners with people, understand people better, be a good human being. That's what I want to be. I want to be a person who helps us along as a nation and those that I touch. Or am I going to be a negative person? Just at least accept the role you're playing and stop blaming everybody else. Because, boy, are we we're caught up in that, like, unbelievably now. Yes, we really are. So, um there's the last thing I really want to address in your book is um, this statement that we're getting along better than we may think. It isn't newsworthy, but it should be. So, why do you think we're getting better more? We're getting along better than we think. Uh, thank you for that question. Because if you look at your own circle of life, okay, get away from abstractions of the media and stuff. Just focus on your own orbit. I call it your orbit, right? The pe- your, yourself, the people you know, family, friends, coworkers. If you look at those relationships, by and large, they're either positive or neutral. Of course, there's some negative re- relationships out there. Of course, there are, right? But in your orbit, take stock and take inventory. Are most people in your orbit pretty good people? And do you think you're a pretty good person? Not perfect? If the answer to that question is yes, then think about that. Right? Most people are neutral or positive. Of course, there's negative people. But I like to say, look, you know, when I'm, you know, Randy, you know, it's, it's just my nature, okay? But when I meet strangers, I always try to be nice to a stranger. I always look at the cashier at the checkout counter, and I tr- look for their name tag, and they've got their name there. I always say, thank you, you know, Joe, thank you, Mary, whatever. The way we treat strangers, especially strangers, right, spreads positive energy to other people. And so it, it's really, really important that we become aware of, of the fact that most people we know are pretty they're, – they're either neutral or they're good. And be aware of that because all this negative energy would create a picture that, oh, everybody's terrible, everybody's horrible, everybody's this. No, it's not. 
No, it's not true. That's just not true. There are negative people. There are nasty people. There are conflictual people. But there's a lot of good people out there as well. And again, take personal inventory. Don't take my word for it. Look at your life. And if, if you say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I got this person, that person that's nasty. Really? Okay, is that everybody you know? And so people make stupid conclusions. I use the word stupid. I'm sorry. They base on one incident. They say everybody's like this. All men are like this. All women are like that. All this, all that. Really? Just based on one or two experience, personal experiences? That's, that's not an intelligence approach to other human beings. We, we're, you know, we're more alike than not. We're more alike than not. I mean, I see this in my work. I spent 90,000 hours listening to people's problems. You know what? Problems are problems. You know, they take different forms, of course. But the thing is, we are all more alike than not. And again, most people, that's my argument. Most people are good. And you may have listeners out there saying, I don't believe that. That's fine. That's your, your life view. But I would challenge it because most people that you run into, that you interact with are either, you know, just getting through life like you are, or they're positive. Right. Um, You know, I think with um, like online dating and all these kind of apps, um, that view can be really slanted because a lot of the people that go on those things, I mean, there's plenty of good people that are, you know, looking for someone nice. And, but most of the people that go on there are predatory and so it may seem like, my gosh, everybody is out to get me. Um, and, you know, but I, but I know that uh, changing our attitudes changes what we draw to us. And, yeah, I try to smile at everybody that I pass, which was very difficult during the pandemic because I had a mask on. And I couldn't right, smile at people. Right. So I tried to do it with my eyes, you know, but it just didn't have the same effect. Yes. You know, right. <laughs> um, but there are really good people. And I, you know, and when we heal ourselves and we work on ourselves and we take responsibility for ourselves and we learn to love ourselves, we attract the same to us, to ourselves. Um, it's magnetic. We do. And you know what I'd like to remind people, I say at the end of my book too, here's the deal. I mean, look, we're all passing through this life. Last time I checked, Nobody's here forever. So all the things that concern us, worry us, you know, the second we pass, it doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? So live your life now. Be a positive person because you're not going to be here forever. Use your time on this planet, on this earth, to try to be the best person you can be. Because, again, you know, we're all passing through life. I, Randy, I often look around me and I go, you know, in 100 years from now, everybody I'm looking at is not here. We're all gone. We've moved on. And That's right. So between – between now and whatever time you have left on this planet, make that decision. Try to be a good person. Try to be a positive person, okay? Because all these worries, concerns, fears, anxieties that make people crazy, it's like, relax. You're not here forever. Put it in perspective. Be a little philosophical. Take a, a broader view of life. And that's what's missing for a lot of people. They just get caught up in the day in, day out craziness without take a look at the bigger picture. You know, we're always challenged in life. We're always going to be right. You're right. And negativity is painful. It's uncomfortable. Um, Yes. So negative people are, are generally miserable. You know, even if they're taking responsibility for it, they're, they're in bad mood. Yes. 
they don't feel yes. good in, in their own bodies so or minds. 100%. So, right. So it's really a choice. Do you want to feel good? You know, there's things that you can do. And there are wonderful therapists like you that are out there helping other people <laughs> do this kind of, you and know. You, help. And you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not a therapist, but thank you. I do this work all the time. Um, so, yeah, but um, it is a choice. And it's really, I can't imagine making a different choice. I can't imagine not wanting to feel better and better and better and putting in that effort to do so. As long as there's people Definitely. to guide us. There are people to guide us. We don't necessarily have to do this on our own. And, That's um, right. Yeah. So we're coming down to the end. Um, so we're okay. talking about your book, Make America Sane Again, a mental health expert weighs in. And yes, you do. You make a, real, a lot of really good points that we may not have necessarily looked at um, in regards to the state of affairs that we feel the country is in, really the world kind of too. But um, you make a lot of points. And really what you're giving us is um, – personal responsibility to make these changes. And I like that. That's I right. Really well, Randy, let me just tell you a quick, um, I dedicate this book to the reader. In the very beginning of the book, the reader is whom I'm dedicating the book to with the hopes that they can see, still see the good in America and do their part to make America sane again. Do your part. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. And so we can make American sa America sane again, one person at a time or collectively, all of us. So everybody listening, there you go. That's how you can do this. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, you can, and you can pick up a copy of, of Michael Adams' book, uh, Make America Sane Again. And um, you can go over because, of course, we couldn't get to everything. But I think we really kind of covered the gist of the book in what we talked about. It's pretty, pretty comprehensive. So thank you. And, and one last thing I want to tell you, Randy, is and this is the part I love. If people go to my my website, MakeAmericaSaneAgain.net, um, I always invite comments. I always invite people to let me know what you think because I answer everybody. So if somebody wants to ask me a question or what do you think, you know, this is what I liked about your book. This is what I didn't care for. I'm not afraid of, you know, positive, negative, and neutral criticism. So any kind of commentary, I'm always welcome to hear back. Okay, good. Okay, there's your invitation, listeners. All right. There you go. Um, so it's been great talking to you. It's a beautiful day down here in South Florida. I hope it's the same in Boca. Usually it's pretty much the same. In Weston and yes, in Boca, <laughs> so yes, uh, and we're heading toward we're heading towards our glorious season where the weather's beautiful and the humidity's down, you and bet. we all look forward to that. So anyway, uh, it's so nice meeting you and talking with you. Thank you, thank, thank you so you. much for giving thank me. Thank you this for interview. having me, Randy. My thank pleasure. you for having me. You're welcome. You. Okay. okay, take care. Bye bye. Take care. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at randy at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.